0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here today's top stories. Hurricane Idalia on its way to the Florida Gulf Coast. Residents prepare for the storm and authorities send out evacuation orders. The suspect in the fatal shooting at UNC has been charged with murder. Who is he and what's his relationship to the victim? Three of former President Donald Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election case have pleaded not guilty, including former Trump attorney Sidney Powell. President Biden vowing to take on Big Pharma as he announces the first drugs to make cheaper through price negotiations. How the pharmaceutical industry is fighting back with lawsuits. And in more Biden news, the National Archives is holding over 5,000 documents connected to then-Vice President Joe Biden and his fictitious email accounts. As the Secretary of Commerce visits China to thaw relations, she warns U.S. companies are hesitant to invest. What does she have to say about decoupling from the country? And it's been two years since 13 troops were killed during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Their families raised questions and concerns in a panel discussion. (music) Hurricane Idalia is expected to make landfall in the Florida Gulf Coast tomorrow morning. Authorities are urging residents to brace for major impacts and evacuate areas that will be hit the hardest.
1: As of Tuesday afternoon, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis has declared states of emergency in 49 of Florida's 67 counties in preparation for Hurricane Idalia. The storm has made landfall in Cuba and is projected to make landfall as a Category 3 hurricane on Florida's Big Bend Gulf Coast early Wednesday morning. It's expected to carry winds of 120 miles an hour.
2: In some of these areas, like a Cedar Key, some of these others, Uh, along the Big Bend, um, you know, you're talking about really, really significant storm surge potential. I mean, this is similar 10, 12-plus feet of storm surge could happen in some of those areas.
1: The governor has activated 5,500 National Guard members, 25,000 linemen to restore power after the storm, and 580 urban search and rescue team members. Authorities issued evacuation notices in 23 counties with mandatory orders in some people in 12 of those counties. Residents are preparing for the impact of the hurricane.
3: Regardless, in every situation, I always start preparing, putting away all my um, patio furniture, bringing in anything out there that's loose and can fly away. Uh, getting the sandbags.
4: If it's a large hurricane, then uh, pretty much the last eight years that we've been working for this restaurant, uh, it's going to be wiped out, and we're not going to have much left after this. But we're uh, we're just hoping it's going to go through pretty quick.
1: Classes in 42 school districts and over a dozen colleges have been canceled through at least Wednesday, and two of the region's largest airports, Tampa and Saint Petersburg-Clearwater, are closed. The National Weather Service in Tallahassee calls Idalia an unprecedented event since no major hurricane on record has ever passed through Florida's Big Bend region. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News.
0: The suspect in a shooting at the University of North Carolina has been charged with first-degree murder. Authorities identify the suspect as 34-year-old doctoral student Tyler Chi and the victim as his faculty advisor. The attack led to a campus-wide lockdown as police searched for the gunman. The UNC police chief said they took Chi into custody within two hours of the shooting. He also said investigators are still looking for the murder weapon and trying to determine the motive behind the fatal shooting. Chi was ordered to be held without bond and his next court date is set for September 18th. He has not entered a plea taking on big pharma. That's what President Biden is touting as he announces the first drugs to be targeted for price cuts. But drug companies are fighting back in court. NTD's Iris Tau has more from the White House.
5: And President Biden today announced the first 10 drugs for which Medicare will be able to negotiate prices with drug companies. Biden says it will help Americans save money on prescription drugs.
2: Today is the start of a new deal for patients where big pharma doesn't just have, get a blank check at your expense.
5: Biden's inflation reduction nag last year gave Medicare the unprecedented authority to directly hash out drug prices with drug manufacturers. And President Biden, who's seeking re-election, is touting that step as one of the ways that he's improving the economy.
2: They started referring to my economic policy as Bidenomics. Well, guess what? It's working.
5: Yeah. The drugs selected for price-lowering talks include big-selling blood thinners Eliquis and Xarelto, as well as diabetes drug, Jardians. But consumers won't see any immediate savings, as any negotiated price won't go into effect until 2026. And thus, as the move is also getting strong pushback from major drug makers like Johnson & Johnson and Merck. They filed at least eight lawsuits, arguing that the government's price-controlling policy is unconstitutional. And they warned that shrinking profits can make drugs companies even less willing to take the risks to develop new drugs. But the Biden administration said today that it is not concerned about these lawsuits. We are
6: very confident in the law and we should recognize there is no part of the constitution that prohibits Medicare drug negotiations.
5: The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated that price negotiations will lower the number of new drugs coming to the market by one percent over the next 30 years. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News.
0: The National Archives may have over 5,000 documents connecting then-Vice President Joe Biden to fake email accounts. That's according to a lawsuit filed by a conservative legal foundation on Monday. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details.
3: In a lawsuit filed on Monday, the Southeastern Legal Foundation, a nonprofit national legal organization revealing that the National Archives identified nearly 5,400 documents connected to pseudonym email accounts used by then Vice President Joe Biden. This comes in response to the Foundation’s Freedom of Information Act request on June 9, 2022. The Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, permits American citizens to seek transparency from the federal government on matters of national concern. The foundation had requested all emails used by then-Vice President Joe Biden under three pseudonyms, Robert Ware, J.R.B. Ware, and Robert L. Peters. They're investigating whether or not President Biden was involved with his son's foreign business dealings. The House Oversight Committee requested the same emails earlier this month in connection with its own investigation into President Biden. In a timeline of the investigation, the committee reports records obtained through the committee's subpoenas to date reveal that the Bidens and their associates have received over $20 million in payments from foreign entities. Today, Coma responded to the number of documents held by the archives.
4: Every week we find more information, more pseudonyms, more communication between joe biden and his family more shell companies more wire transfers so this is getting worse by the day
3: according to the foundation's press release it first requested the emails in 2021 after members of the senate judiciary committee identified the three email accounts in a letter to the archives but the archives said it was too soon to release them then the foundation made a second request in june 2022 The Archives responded in a June 24, 2022 letter. We have performed a search of our collection for vice presidential records related to your request and have identified approximately 5,138 email messages, 25 electronic files, and 200 pages of potentially responsive records that must be processed in order to respond to your request. The foundation states in the lawsuit that in the last 14 months, the archives responded five times but failed to provide any responsive records. The archives has not returned media requests for comment. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Turning now to former
0: President Donald Trump, Sidney Powell, one of Trump's former attorneys, entered a not guilty plea in a court filing today. She also waived her arraignment in the case in Fulton County, Georgia. Powell was charged along with Trump and 17 other co-defendants in connection with their efforts to challenge the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Trevian Cuddy, another defendant in the case who was accused of participating in a campaign to harass an election worker, also entered a not guilty plea and waived her arraignment Tuesday. The judge overseeing the case scheduled arraignments for all 19 defendants for September 6th. The court frequently allows defendants to appear virtually for arraignments or to waive their appearances entirely. Powell and Cuddy are the second and third defendants to plead not guilty and waive their arraignments after Ray Smith on Monday. We're still over a year away from the 2024 presidential election. However, the first candidate is already dropping out of the race. Miami Republican Mayor Francis Suarez on Tuesday announcing he's dropping out of the presidential race. This comes less than a week after the first primary debate, which he didn't qualify for. In his Tuesday statement, he said the next president has an important job to do getting America back on track. He also said the left has taken Hispanics for granted, which is why many are switching to the conservative side, according to him. He also said the Republican Party and Hispanics share the same values faith, family, hard work, and freedom. The U.S. Commerce Secretary is denying requests from China to pull back on sanctions. She's currently visiting the country to try to thaw trade relations. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more.
7: Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is the fourth Biden administration official to visit China in just 10 weeks time. Raimondo is tasked with trying to improve trade relations with China, but there are big complexities overshadowing this relationship. And then there's the fact that both the US and China are economic superpowers, both of which heavily impact the global economy. Raimondo, when meeting with Chinese officials this week, followed in the footsteps of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, saying that the US does not intend to decouple with China. However, she did mention that U.S. Companies, including Intel, Micron Tech, and others are concerned about continuing to invest in China, citing that there are too many risks. While lawmakers are telling me that even if the Biden administration isn't willing to admit it, we are already decoupling from China and that it's time to do so.
4: Uh, there's a risk. Of, uh, of, of a trade war, obviously. So she can say there's not a decoupling, but a decoupling that began under President Trump very much con- continues because it's in the national interest. I think that we have to stop playing the ideas that we're worried about the $750 billion and in, in decoupling and in trade,
8: and start thinking about the ideas of actually holding adversaries accountable.
7: In these meetings between U.S. and Chinese officials, China requested that the U.S. ease its export controls and also requested that we stop banning investment in new technology, all of which those requests were denied by Jean Raimondo. She cited national security concerns. Meanwhile, some are saying that now is the time for the U.S. to stand firm and not give in, especially considering that China needs U.S. investment right now as their economy is in a state of decline.
9: Their real estate market for example, is through the roof.
2: And there's so many other problems. uh, And they certainly have a whole lot of slave labor
10: there.
7: To that point, the U.S. has described China's slowing economy as a risk factor. And President Biden has specifically described China's economy as a ticking time bomb. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Wisecup, NTD News.
0: The White House is suggesting that the Kremlin was responsible for the death of Wagner mercenary group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. Here's what White House press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said today. But
3: I don't have any a new
0: assessment for you. But it seems uh, pretty evident what happened here. Uh, that uh, as as the president said that, said this recently, I believe as early as last week that, and I quote, "There's not much that happens in Russia that Putin is not behind." Prigozhin was killed last week when the plane he was flying in abruptly crashed outside of Moscow. President Biden told reporters last week that the U.S. was working to try to reach a conclusion on how the plane was brought down. Jean-Pierre added, quote, "...we all know that the Kremlin has a long history of killing opponents." Her comment was the closest U.S. statement yet on the possibility that Russian President Vladimir Putin directed the killing of Prigozhin. The Wagner leader had launched a brief mutiny against the Kremlin in June. Putin forced the Wagner group to withdraw from Ukraine following the mutiny. It's been two years since 13 American troops were killed during the Afghan withdrawal, and their families are still looking for answers. NTD's Jason Perry covers a panel discussion with those Gold Star
10: families. It's been over 22 years since the tragic events of September 11th shook our nation to its core. In response, the United States sent troops to Afghanistan to defeat Al-Qaeda and bring justice to those responsible for the attacks. For over two decades, brave men and women served on foreign land and thousands of them making the ultimate sacrifice. Last year, President Biden withdrew US forces from Afghanistan, but many criticized the operation as hasty and ill-planned. During the withdrawal, 13 American service members were killed during a devastating terrorist attack at Kabul's Abbey Gate. 45 other troops were also injured in the attack, and 170 civilians were killed. I trade every medal. <laughs> every
3: word to have my son back
10: on Tuesday two years after the chaotic withdrawal. The House Foreign Affairs Committee hosted the family members of those 13 fallen troops. The saddest
2: part is it all could have been prevented.
10: Representative Michael McCall gave his condolences to the families and said this.
2: Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who is here today and Tyler, we want to thank you for being here. Testified that Marine snipers at Abbey Gate spotted the suicide bomber before the explosion. Yet they were told by their superiors that they could not engage the threat, were not given permission to engage.
10: The mother-in-law of Marine Sergeant Nicole G. also said the attack could have been prevented. Our armed services request for air
7: support. Multiple, multiple military personnel saying this is not a good idea. Our snipers asking for permission to engage, every one of them ignored. These are red flags. Why were they ignored?
10: Midway through the panel, a message was brought in from the Pentagon.
2: I want to read a a statement that I just received from General
10: Milley. The statement said Milley believes the military did the best they could, briefing the families. And if there were issues with that, we need to take whatever corrective action is necessary. Steve Nikawi, father of Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem Nikawi, said some of the generals defended their roles in the withdrawals by saying they could only give recommendations to the president, and it is up to the president to take those recommendations. I also thought it was a responsibility of generals to threaten to resign as a last measure of persuasion. They didn't do that. Representative McCall said he will continue the investigation into the Afghanistan withdrawal. And on Thursday, the committee will be interviewing Ambassador Dan Smith, who led the State Department's Afghanistan After Action Review. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: Coming up, we speak with a doctor who says COVID-19 boosters are outdated before they hit the market. The CDC currently recommends the shot while doing away with a popular adverse event reporting page. As school starts back for many students, experts now say millions of kids still suffer from learning loss after the pandemic. That's despite billions of dollars from the federal government allocated to minimize that problem. And California is suing a school district over its new policy on gender identity. The state claims it would threaten students' well-being. We'll have this and more when we come back. Welcome back. The CDC is no longer collecting reports on COVID-19 vaccine side effects through its V-safe page. Millions of Americans reported impacts from the vaccine, so what's going on? To find out, we spoke with Dr. Peter McCullough, the author of The Courage to Face COVID-19. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me it seems the cdc has quietly removed a page that was for collecting covid adverse effects and it seems when there's a new medicine coming out normally there's a lot of data collection so after two years is it still necessary to be collecting this type of data
9: it is the cdc v-safe data is the cdc's program that's on the cell phones it's the one opportunity for patients themselves to report side effects they're having with the new vaccines. With each one of the new COVID vaccines, it's a brand-new formula producing a brand-new sets of spike proteins that the human body hasn't seen before. And we can expect uh, potentially new side effects or amplified uh, problems that have already known to be occurring with the vaccines. So, it's very important that the CDC continue to collect safety data, this action to me means they're turning a blind eye towards safety
0: and on that note is there any place to collect that data right now
9: you know as it as we sit here today the cd still has the var system the var system you know vast majority are entered by doctors nurses paramedics and others it's not a patient friendly system to do the entries in fact you have to have all the doctor's information to enter in vers and then outside of that, we have some NGOs that have reporting mechanisms, including the Truth for Health Foundation. Uh, but I can tell you right now, the CDC has no reason to shut down vSAFE. That is their system for patient-reported safety.
0: And doctor, speaking of new vaccines or new variants, President Biden on Friday asked Congress for more funding to create a new vaccine or a booster, at least for the new variants. Apparently, the ones currently out don't really help on that. So, how is there going to be data collection on this new one? You
9: know, the uh, current boosters were outdated before they hit the market. They were they were called BA four, BA five boosters. So they didn't work. People got COVID anyway. Now, uh, the companies are still behind the virus. So the companies will have an XBB1.5 vaccine. But XBB1.5 now, as of mid-August, is less than 5 percent of the strains and going away. The current strain is ARIS or, uh, or an EG5. So right now, it's a hopeless endeavor to keep chasing this rapidly mutating uh, virus. The vaccines are far too late, and all they're doing is making patients sick because they have side effects. None of the vaccines uh, appear to be any safer than the original ones.
0: And on that note, some people could be on their fifth, sixth, or potentially even seventh booster. Is there any precedent for so many shots in such a short time in history?
9: No, there's no precedent for taking you know, seven booster shots. Or uh, you know, seven shots even total. If someone's following the government narrative, they're taking seven shots. No, we've had no public figure, uh, no president, vice president, any senator, any public health official state publicly that they've taken seven shots. So uh, you know, I think if people really are supporting this program, we we should understand who really has taken seven shots and who has quietly fallen away from taking them because of safety concerns. Mm-hmm.
0: And just really quickly, I want your advice on how do we tell the difference between a therapeutic and a sterilizing vaccine? Because it seems these have been recommended or even mandated. That's normally reserved for sterilizing. So what is that fundamental difference?
9: You know, sterilizing vaccines mean that once somebody has uh, the vaccine on board, that it basically sterilizes or neutralizes the uh, the pathogen. And so You know, one can't get it and one can't give it to someone else. Our CDC told us uh, early in 2021 the vaccines were not sterilizing. In fact, fully vaccinated people were giving the virus to fully vaccinated people. So that left, you know, the only issue of, of whether or not it has any therapeutic benefits. Do they reduce the risk of hospitalization and death? And the answer is no. And, you know, the consent form FAQ doesn't make that claim. So the the official government documents that patients see do not make the claim that the vaccines reduce hospitalization and death, yet public health agencies and others out there are pushing a false narrative that the vaccines make the illness less severe when, indeed, it doesn't.
0: Wow. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. In other COVID-related news, schools are still struggling to catch up from learning loss, even now two years after pandemic-related lockdowns. That's despite getting billions of dollars in federal aid.
11: Between March of 2020 and March of 2021, Congress authorized $190 billion for K-12 schools, about six times what they receive from the federal government in a normal year. But Harvard's Center for Education Policy Research says problems remain. It found that the average student lost half a year of learning in math. Some students in some areas fell behind by more than a year and a half in math.
0: Remember, when the president walked in, more than 50 percent of schools were shut down because of COVID, because the last administration didn't have a plan, didn't have a
6: comprehensive plan to deal with COVID.
11: This comes as President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited a Washington, D.C. public middle school Monday. They went to welcome students back for the new school year.
2: The hardest thing is to come back after three months of not doing any work, not doing any homework, and all of a sudden, you've got a lot to make up. Everybody has a lot to catch up from the end of the last year.
11: Jill Biden, a longtime teacher. Meanwhile, the president of PTA at Lincoln High School in San Francisco reflected that during the pandemic, many parents started scrutinizing the public school system. He made the remarks in a newly published episode with the Epic Times' California Insider.
2: Because when the pandemic hit, all the parents could see what their kids were actually being taught because it was all on Zoom. And many, many parents were saying, oh no, what the heck is this? You know, they were very dissatisfied on two fronts. One, that the schools were not open when private schools were open wow. and public schools were closed, but they could see that the quality of the education was not to their standards.
11: You can watch the entire episode of California Insider on epicTV.com.
0: California's attorney general sued a school district over its new policy requiring schools to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. It's the latest in the battle between a handful of school districts and the state over parental rights. NTD's Eiling Ang has the story.
6: Attorney General Rob Bonta sued the Chino Valley Unified School District on Monday for requiring parents to be notified if their kids change gender identification. He alleges that the district will forcibly out transgender students and threaten their well-being. But the district's board president and supporters say parents have the right to know the decisions their children are making in schools.
1: It violates California's Equal Protection Clause. And it violates California's constitutionally protected right
9: to privacy.
6: Bonta is seeking a court order to immediately block the policy in Chino Valley, which requires schools to notify parents within three days if employees become aware a student is asking to be treated as a gender other than the one listed in official records. NTD reached out to the Chino Valley Unified School District for a comment, but didn't hear back by airtime. A couple of nearby districts have adopted similar policies, and at least one more is considering doing so. The moves have sparked fierce debates at local school board meetings amid an intense national conversation over transgender rights. Outside of Bonta's office, a group of about 30 parents and proponents of parental notification policies gathered Monday afternoon to announce a campaign for three proposed ballot initiatives for voters in November 2024.
7: The first
12: initiative is called Schools Transparency and Partnership Act. Let's return parents to their rightful position as parenting their children. We don't want schools hiding secrets from parents that their child is gender-questioning or gender-confused. And we don't want schools taking medical interventions by socially transitioning our kids
6: without our consent. The other two measures would require schools to ban trans students from participating in girls' sports and ban gender-affirming surgeries for minors. California law requires children to get parental consent before undergoing gender-affirming surgeries. Bonta's office has about two months to write summaries for the measures before the group can start collecting signatures needed to place them on the ballot.
0: Coming up, people dropping their home insurance as premiums climb. Is this a money-saving idea or a financial risk? We'll dive into it. Nearly a million birds and bats are killed every year from wind turbine collisions. As California invests in offshore wind energy, one scientist calls the move, quote, clean energy at a cost. And Americans are feeling worse about the U.S. economy and are becoming a bit more cautious with their spending. We'll take a closer look when we return with NTD News. insurance premiums are up, prompting many Americans to get rid of their insurance altogether. But there are risks to not having an insured home. NTD's Faye Quarter describes the worst-case scenario.
13: The average home insurance premium is up from $1,383 a year in 2022 to over $1,400 in 2023. This is prompting many Americans to drop their policies, according to the Wall Street Journal.
12: I'm seeing this with acquaintances, people I know who have maybe just paid off their home or their retirees that I've met, and they feel like they're in a financial position where they don't have to have homeowners insurance because they no longer
13: have a mortgage. Laura Adams is an analyst at Finder.com, a website where you can quickly compare home insurance plans from different companies. She says that it's very risky to not have insurance. Experts say few people can financially handle the loss of an uninsured home. It's not just about getting money after losing your home. You may have to pay to remove the remains as well.
7: Worst case scenario in in my mind is that you have no insurance, whether you purposely didn't pay it or you just accidentally let it lapse by not making the payment and your house burns down and you literally lose everything.
13: Insurance agent Heidi Moore says most plans cover not only your home but also the items inside your home. This could include furniture, electronics, and appliances. If insurance is too expensive, Moore suggests getting a less expensive plan.
7: There are creative ways sometimes to help with making an insurance policy for your home a little bit more manageable financially. You can change liability limits. You can definitely change deductible amounts. So the higher the deductible, typically the lower the payment. Um, But even though we don't really advise insuring your house for less than it would be to rebuild it. Most mortgage
13: lenders require that borrowers have home insurance. If a borrower drops the policy, the lender will likely impose very expensive penalties. They may buy an insurance plan for you and pass the costs on to you. These plans are typically much more expensive than the plans you'd buy yourself. Lenders may also take legal action, raise your interest rate, or demand immediate payment of the rest of your mortgage. Faye Quarter, NTD News.
0: Wind turbines account for nearly a million bird and bat deaths annually. An ecologist raises concerns about the hidden costs to ecosystems, especially given California's plan to expand its wind farms. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports.
12: Studies report that up to a million birds and a million bats lose their lives every year due to collisions with wind turbine blades on wind farms.
14: I've seen videos of vultures getting soaring around a turbine and getting smacked. So, uh, you know, which species do you want to say, oh, we can, this one's okay, this one's not. It's, uh, I'd rather not have any go down.
12: But scientists like Jim Steele say the concern for birds now grow as California invests more in wind energy.
14: I can tell you from California, where we have maybe three main passes where they put all the wind farms because that's where the, winds get funneled through and amplified. And now they're pushing to put uh, wind turbines offshore.
12: According to the California Energy Commission, the state's aggressive zero carbon emission goals include generating 25 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2045. Now, groups like American Bird Conservancy and experts in wind energy are working to make it safer for birds. One idea is to use turbines without blades.
14: They're aware of these problems, Um, But it keeps getting pushed because it looks like, oh, this is is clean energy, but it's clean energy at a cost.
12: Most of the wind turbines causing problems are in certain states like Texas, Oklahoma, and Iowa. Both birds and bats often travel along the same path when they migrate. Steele adds that this loss affects various species differently, with some birds having slower breeding rates making recovery difficult.
14: And these wind farms are not helping us. They're making it worse. They're making the accumulation of mortality worse. So, you know, it doesn't get that kind of uh, attention because people want to blame other things for for extinction crisis. But they won't take credit for for their participation in, in why that is happening. And I think wind farms are part of that.
12: He says every year, approximately 60 million birds collide with wind turbines, power lines, or get hurt by electricity. In the last 50 years, 3 billion have died from turbine collisions. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, Los Angeles.
0: Americans are feeling less confident financially about the U.S. economy, even as the job market becomes tighter. We speak with NTD businesses Don Ma about this. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show.
8: Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany.
0: Don, U.S. consumer confidence fell more than expected this month. Tell us what happened here.
8: Yes, so the very respected research organization that provides business insight, it's called the Conference Board, it said its consumer confidence index fell in August. So why did this happen? Consumers were once again concerned with uh, rising prices in general and for groceries and in gasoline in particular. Now, I say once again because before this, we saw two straight monthly increases, increases actually, in consumer confidence. So the pullback uh, this month was seen across all age groups, but it was most notable among consumers with household incomes of $100,000 or more. But those earning less than $50,000 are also seeing a drop in confidence.
0: And Don, why is user-consumer confidence so important? Why should we pay attention to it?
8: Right, uh, very good question. So consumer confidence is important because it directly impacts economic activity. So when consumers feel confident about the economy and their personal financial situation, they're more likely to spend money on goods and services. And consumer spending is a major component of the U.S. gross domestic product, around 70%. So this increased spending then stimulates demand DRIVES BUSINESS GROWTH AND LEADS TO JOB CREATION. It, IT CAN BE SEEN ACTUALLY AS AN INDICATOR OF ECONOMIC HEALTH.
0: AND ON THAT NOTE, IS THIS AN INDICATOR THAT THE ECONOMY COULD BE SLOWING DOWN?
8: YEAH, I MEAN, I THINK YOU COULD SAY THAT. but i just like to point out we have to look at more than just one economic data point if we want a more accurate view of the economy. Um, For example, the Labor Department just released uh, the number of available jobs in the United States, and that number shrank for the third consecutive month. Uh, Businesses hired fewer workers and layoffs inched higher. So, Now, the labor market is actually getting tighter. Before, we used to have close to two job openings for every single person looking. But now we have somewhere around 1.5. And, you know, by the way, Tiffany, the labor market also has an impact on consumer confidence because employment is the primary source of income for most individuals. So when people have stable jobs uh, and incomes, uh, they feel more financially secure and they're more likely to spend. But, you know, to to answer your question, yes, there are definitely signs that the economy may be cooling. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're currently in a recession.
0: And, Don, given that we are experiencing inflation, isn't a slowing economy good for that?
8: You know, you're right on that point that uh, it does slow down inflation. But here's the thing, Tiffany. From the perspective of regular consumers, they won't feel that much immediate financial relief uh, because just because inflation is slowing down, that doesn't mean prices are getting cheaper or lower. And you couple that with the slowing economy and high interest rates, consumers could be facing a double or even a triple whammy in the near term. But, you know, the long term story is, is very different and it could be a different discussion for another day.
0: Sounds like some good and some bad news there, Don Ma. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Up next, a border agent is reinstated to his post in California. What does this mean for border security? Our next guest says political retaliation is pervasive in the Department of Homeland Security. And at the U.S. Open, will we get a dream matchup for the title? A look at another Novak Djokovic versus Carlos Alcaris final when we return. Welcome back. With the border crisis spilling over into every state, a border sector chief reinstated in California, what does this tell us about the border situation? To find out, we speak with Rodney Scott, retired chief of U.S. Border Patrol. Rodney Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: So, a border agent has been reinstated. This is in the El Centro California border sector. This is a month after Republicans are saying that he was the target of a political retaliation. So how big of a deal is this reinstatement?
2: It's actually a very big deal. It's not just a border patrol agent, It's it's the sector chief of El Centro. The border, uh, border patrols broke up into 20 different regions, if you will. They call them sectors, and each one of them has an individual chief. It's referred to as a sector chief patrol agent. Um, they're the leadership of the U.S. Border Patrol. And uh, Chief Bovino was actually removed from his position or notified he was being removed from his position about 30 minutes after testifying uh, before Congress about the conditions at the border. Um, No one could ever identify anything he had done wrong. I know him personally, and his integrity is beyond reproach. So his removal was a big deal. And he basically got reassigned to D.C. and just assigned uh, just administrative nothing work without anybody ever really saying, hey, this is, you know, what you did wrong, because he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, Some congressmen, um, a lot of media, luckily, uh, and then some of his uh, co-workers actually called DHS out for this. And started asking a lot of questions. And then just, it appears to me, at least, just through those questions and the the visibility, uh, they elected to put him back in office. And I would be remiss to to highlight, too, that they did this while there was a transition in the chief of the United States Border Patrol going on. Raul Ortiz had just retired. Uh, Jason Owens, the new chief, had not yet settled in D.C. So uh, I'm speculating a little bit, but I think once the new chief got in place and started looking around too and asking some questions, I think that helped put him get the chief Bovino put back where he belonged in El Central 2nd.
0: And on that note, in your view, is this political retaliation a pervasive thing throughout the DHS or was this a single worst case scenario?
2: Oh, no, it's very pervasive. So this administration... Uh, I WAS A VICTIM OF IT EARLY ON, Um, WHEN I WAS BEING REASSIGNED FROM BEING CHIEF. AGAIN, THEY COULDN'T HIGHLIGHT ANYTHING. Um, BACKDOOR INFORMATION WAS THAT THEY SPECULATED THAT WE WERE ALIGNED WITH THE REPUBLICAN PARTY JUST BECAUSE WE TOLD THEM THE BORDER, IF THEY DID THE POLICIES THEY WERE TALKING ABOUT, THE BORDER WAS GOING TO GET OUT OF CONTROL, IT WAS GOING TO BE CHAOS, ALL OF WHICH TURNED OUT TRUE. Uh, BUT I KNOW A LOT OF JOURNALISTS HAVE COMPLAINED that IT'S HARD TO GET INFORMATION OUT OF CBP AND BORDER PATROL That's because this administration put gag orders on all of them, and they're very, very, very—they try to very tightly control the messaging. Um, And anybody that actually speaks the truth is potentially suffering retaliation in this administration. This goes well beyond Border Patrol and DHS, I think, and I think it's almost common knowledge now.
0: And Ronnie, when it comes to the border more broadly, it seems we're getting all sorts of statements. The Biden administration is saying it is secure. Meanwhile, <laughs> sanctuary cities like New York City are even saying they're overwhelmed. So what is the actual situation here?
2: Yeah, just look at the facts. So I highly encourage your viewers to go to CBP.gov. It's Customs and Border Protection's public website. If they go into Newsroom, they can look at this uh, and scroll down to Stats and Summaries. They can see the numbers for themselves. Stop listening to the, how this administration picks one or two numbers and then spins it and tries to say the border's secure. We're already over 2.5 million illegal aliens encountered coming across our southwest border this year. We're going to exceed last year's record numbers. Inside of that, there's over 150 individuals on the National Terrorist Watch List, thousands of criminal aliens, and those are only the ones we know about. Since Biden's been in office, there's been over 1.7 million documented gotaways. That means Border Patrol saw people, but they were out of agents, and they couldn't even respond. This is total chaos. This is a national security threat to our country, not just an immigration issue. And you're starting to see how massive it is uh, through these sanctuary cities like New York that are starting to you know, basically cry foul that uh, all these people are showing up that they invited, by the way, um, and that they don't have enough housing for them. This is a crisis. Don't listen to Biden and look for the numbers. Look up the numbers yourself and make your own decisions. That's my suggestion to most viewers.
0: And it seems some experts are coming out and saying that every state is a border state given the chaos you just outlined. So what is the solution here?
2: So the solution is enforce the law. And when people say every state is a border state, I need people just to understand that. And you're seeing it in New York, nothing stays at the border, it never has. So. So, border enforcement isn't about just protecting border towns. It's about protecting our entire country. But during the last administration, they listened to government officials, our recommendations, and they did a few things. First off, they made sure people were not released into the United States until a judge had adjudicated their their claim, if you will, and that includes asylum. So somebody can still try to claim asylum, but we were not releasing them into the United States until a judge looked at their case and decided they could be here or not. They were either detained or they had to wait in Mexico. That reduced over 80 percent of the fraud overnight, dramatically reduced the flow. That makes every agent out there more effective. We were also building out barriers, the border wall system, if you will. It wasn't just a wall. It also involved technology and access roads. That allowed every agent to cover more area. And they were actually out enforcing the law, catching those criminals, stopping those gotaways and keeping our country safe simply by enforcing the laws. You do those two things and then you start doing interior enforcement and we can turn this situation around overnight.
0: Definitely a lot unfolding here in Rodney Scott. Thank you so much for your time. And now for your sports news. We're joined by entities Dave Martin. Dave with the U.S. Open underway. Do you think we're headed towards another Novak Djokovic versus Carlos Alcatraz final?
4: Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I'm certainly not the only one. The fans, I'm sure, definitely want to see this. I mean, there's no Serena Williams this year. There's no Roger Federer. Rafael Nadal is injured. This would really be the next best thing if these two played. Uh, These two have a budding rivalry. They've been ranked number one or two the entire year. They've already played three times. Djokovic has won two of those three. But Alcaraz got him at the Wimbledon Finals. I think in a rematch, Djokovic uh, gets revenge.
0: And Dave, you've said there are multiple storylines here, so what else is going on?
4: Well, Caroline Wozniacki's return last night was a nice story. She retired in 2020. She's a former world number one player. And now three years and two kids later, she's back on the tour. She won last night. She's a big fan and favorite, of course, also is Venus Williams. She plays tonight. She's now 43 years old. She won this event all the way back in 2000 and again in 2001. Now I'm also interested to see how Coco Goff fares. She's a 19-year-old American. She beat number one-ranked Iga Sviatek earlier this year. I think she really has a great shot at bringing home the title.
0: And now Dave, shifting gears to the ongoing NCAA conference realignment news, were you surprised to hear that Stanford and Cal would reportedly be taking a partial payout to join the ACC? Well,
4: frankly, yes. I mean. There's not going to be a Big Ten invite or an SEC invite. I think if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. But if I were them, I would at least be on the phone with the Big 12 trying to set up a meeting, if nothing more than to get leverage with the ACC. Now, I know they don't match up academically very well with the Big 12. Geographically-wise, they're right next door. The ACC, meanwhile, is 2,000 miles away. Whatever revenue this would bring in for those schools, which is expected to be three to $4 per year per school, is at least going to be partially offset by all the extra travel expenses this is going to incur. It doesn't seem to make much sense for any other sport other than football. But either way, it sounds like we're going to finally have an answer on this later this week.
0: Dave, thank you for that update. Thank you, Tiff. And if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night we